before you came on, Ben and I had this conversation and your name kept coming up. And I said, man, we need to get Remy on because our stories are different. Yeah. But there is there's a little relationship in, in within those stories of somewhat how we grew up, man. I need to go back on your story. Remy, I want you to start with your mother and growing up and she you from Nigeria, correct? Yeah, 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 yeah. I was I was born in Nigeria. So yeah. start us off, man. Give us that journey. We want to know the journey from Nigeria and then your life. And you know what I want the audience to hear, man. I I just want it to be raw, transparent because there's so many kids yeah. that are in, you know, the shoes that you walked and that probably didn't think there was any out, man, but there but eventually, you know, you're you're that person that that got in and got out and, and continue to live your life. But I want to start back when you were in Nigeria and in, in, in the way you were raised. Yeah, so uh, I was I was essentially I was born into wealth. So my 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 father uh, was a multimillionaire, um, well known Nigerian engineer, philanthropist, um, uh, consultant. He owned car dealerships. I mean, you name it, he owned it in Nigeria. He owned farms factories. He was a businessman. He was educated in the West. He got his uh, master's and uh, his bachelor's in engineering and architecture at uh, uh, London University. Mm -hmm. um, and he was actually one of the first black men on the border of the World Trade Center in New York City. And wow. he was the first black man on the border of the financial uh, planning council in Great Britain. So my dad was just way ahead of his time. And because of his success, I was, I was born uh, into that life. So we, we traveled the world. We had nannies, uh, we had cars, drivers, horses. We, we didn't live on a house. We lived on a compound on an island uh, called Victoria Island. Hmm. Um, you know, we ate the finest foods. My parents would throw parties for expats and politicians and, and people from all around the world, you know, would come and, and hang with my, with my dad. Um, and unfortunately, there's a lot of corruption in Nigeria and, uh, my dad in the 1970s, before I came along, he had bought a plot of land in Nigeria called Mariko. And uh, he has spent 8 million pounds on that land. And mm. a few years later, the Nigerian government came back and said, you can't have that. And they confiscated it from him. It was actually a, the military government. It was a, a coup and the military took over the government. So they took that from him. Um, but fast forward to when I, when I was a, a born, um, the, uh, the federal government went to my dad because my dad had been in the court fighting the case for, for, for years. And they finally said, okay, what do you want? Uh, do you want your money back? Do you want Maracle back? Like, what do you want? And my dad was smart enough not to take Maracle back and not to take the money um, because that was a large sum of money. And so what he did, he asked for was he asked for a body of water, a lagoon. And, um, and they all laughed at him because they said, what are you going to do with a lagoon? And my father said, you know, just give it to me. So he hired Dutch engineers and he dredged the foreshore and essentially he created an island, one of the first man-made islands in the world. It mm. exists to this day. It's now known as Banana Island. Uh, or people in Nigeria refer to it as Billionaire's Island because a lot of billionaires live on that island. Mm. And uh, long story short, after the land had developed, uh, and after my dad had signed contracts with, with uh, businesses and, and uh, construction firms, uh, the Lego state government came in and said that uh, you can't have this. Uh, it belongs to us. 
and they conveniently waited until the land had formed. I mean, they could have said right. that to him. This took years. So they could have said that to him, you know, when he started dredging, but they waited until it was mm. actually, actually formed into something because nobody believed that he could do what he right. was Right. They, sat, they, they yeah. sat back and watched him go, go through this, be successful, and then came back and yeah. tried to take. Made him do all the work. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And my dad was of the mindset of the reason why he asked for the water was because he figured – if I create something where there was never something, then nobody could ever say that that was mine. <laughs> right, right. Nobody could ever say that, oh, that was mine. You couldn't have. So that's why he did that. But they came back and said that was mine. And uh, my dad uh, went to court for them. And within weeks, he died um, mysteriously of a heart attack. The last person that saw him alive was, uh, was a nanny. She fixed his bath water. He went in and never came out. And uh, when he was, he had so much of his money and, and our, our family wealth wrapped up into my mother's American. Mm. A lot of people don't know this. My mom and my dad met in New York and then they got married and my mom moved to, to, to Africa with my father. And my mother would tell my father all the time, listen, Bio, you need to put money in the States because I don't trust the system. And if things fall apart here, what are we going to have to go back to? Mm. And my father would always say, my priority is my country my mm. country is my priority first and once i get my country to where i want it to be where i know it can be then we'll, we'll begin to put money back into the states and so you know when my father died and my mother couldn't fight the nigerian government she was american my half brother uh at the time he had just graduated from law school he was going back and forth from london to law they weren't going to respect him mm -hmm. so there was nobody to fight and and we lost everything and so we went from rich um to poor like like that and uh, my mother, being American, was just, you know, she would raise my brother and I in Africa. So she permanently relocated us to the States. She grew up in New York City. I actually grew up in the Bronx. She grew up in Manhattan. I grew up in the Bronx. I crossed the bridge from the house from an apartment, apartment building she was in. So that's how I ended up going from Nigeria so, to, to the Bronx. So how old were you when you had to make this, when you came, came to the States and you started living in the Bronx? What was, what was your age? I was five. You were five. five. So your experience yeah. before at that point was luxury. Luxury. Nannies. And, and that's all you knew. That's all I knew. Yeah. So you, and, 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 you know, I know it's a hell of a transition for you, but for your mother, talk to me about the transition for your mother, who's, you know, had a lifestyle. Yeah. And now that's all taken away and it's in a corrupt way. It's taken away. Now she's yeah. in New York city back home. You know, what was it like for her and how did she overcome this? It was hard for her, man. I mean, it was extremely hard because I, I commend her though, because she could have easily quit. She could have easily given up. She could have easily went to go find somebody to get married to. But you know, my mother, she, she just put the pedal to the metal, man. She had my, my brother and I were her inspiration. Mm -hmm. And because of how successful my father was, my mother knew that because his genetics with, was, with, was within my brother and I, that we had the potential within us to do great things. Mm -hmm. And so my mother was distraught, uh, but she picked herself up off the floor. She had one breakdown and she didn't, I, I didn't even see that breakdown. She told me about the breakdown actually when I was writing the book and I put it in the book, but she did that away from us. And, but she held it together. She worked multiple jobs. Um, I mean, my grandmother would come and watch my brother and I while she would work multiple jobs. I mean, she, she would take jobs at places in order to be able to expose us to the arts. So she would take us to 
she would take jobs at museums so that we could, you know, we could go to the museum for free. But then my mom was also a teacher in the South Bronx. <laughs> mm, <laughs> so, right. she, so she would, you know, use her teaching skills to help educate us on the side. And, you know, it was, it, it was hard, man. I, it, was, it was rough. There was times when she didn't have enough food to feed herself. She had uh-huh. just enough food to feed my brother and I. There were times uh-huh. when I would go to the rent office with her and watch while she would beg the, the uh, manager for extra time to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. You know, there were times when she would give my brother and I borrow ivory soap and tell us, you guys, I don't have money for detergent or quarters to go to the laundromat, wash your stuff out in the sink. Mm-hmm. You know, but, you know, my mother never quit, man. You know, people ask me all the time, Randy, how did you get to where you are now? It's because, you know, I had a living example of, of perseverance every single day of my life. You know, my mother got punched in the mouth proverbially every day of the life, but every yeah. day of life. But she just kept picking herself up. You know, she kept picking herself up and kept going. And, you know, she did a good job at masking the reality of, of our plight. You mm-hmm. know, like our apartment, she, she tried to keep it as, as tight as possible. I mean, she had some African art from Africa that my dad had in the apartment. She had tons of books. And she tried to keep it clean and she tried to, you know, just, just create this atmosphere of, hey, boys, we have something uh, and, and, and you guys are something. You are valuable. Though we are in this environment, don't allow this environment to dictate your future. You know, mm-hmm. you dictate your future by doing the work. So uh, I know I threw a lot at you as far as that no, answer. No, man. <laughs> but you know what? You speak volumes because... You know, you're speaking about a woman in your mother that is a hero. But think about this. I mean, she didn't harbor that resentment because that's what shuts us down. Mm-hmm. That's what, uh, truly, that's what shuts us down. There's a resentment, could have been a resentment to the Nigerian uh, government and how they treated the situation. Could have been the resentment of going and living and, and having things taken away from her and now having two kids that she had to raise and been resentful for all those things. And, and that, that did evidently... Humility stepped in, and that didn't stop her, man. She she provided for her babies, and uh, and that's special, man. That is really special. Hundred percent. And you know, a story I didn't share this in my story, in my book, but my mom. One, I think one of the things that wake woke her up. Everybody has a wake up call, you know, when they go through a traumatic experience. Some everybody has that one point where they get slapped in the mouth and it's like, okay, I'm in hell, or okay, I'm. I'm in this bad situation because sometimes we could be in a bad situation and not really know we're in a bad situation. Right, right, right. Uh, but until we get popped in that bad situation <laughs> and then we're like, oh, damn, I'm in this situation. <laughs> well, my mom had that happen, you know, right after, right after we got back to the States, my mother called up her cousin and said, listen, I have no food to feed my kids. I have no money. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Can you loan me some money to tie me over until I figure out what to do? And her cousin, uh, uh, you know, a guy said, let me call you back in five minutes. Five minutes later, the phone rings and it's his wife. And his wife says to my mother, how dare you call up my husband and ask him for wow, money? Wow, man. Who the hell do you mm. think you are to ask my husband for money? Mm. If you want something, you go through me and, and call a bunch of names and then hung up the phone on my mother. Mm. That was my mother's punch in the face. But yeah. it was a blessing that that happened to her because that was when she realized nobody's coming for me. Yeah. Like nobody's coming for me. I'm going to have to do this on my own. And, you know, in, in the SEAL teams and in special operations, we have, we have something called QRF, quick reaction force. And so we go on a mission, you know, and things go 
bad, you get ambushed. I mean, guys are getting killed. You call in your QRF, your quick reaction force to come back you up. My mother lived like there was no QRF. Mm. So that situation reminded her, hey, there is nobody. Gonna, and that's how I try to live my life every day, dude. Like, hey, dude, it's me, my wife, and my kid. Nobody's coming to our rescue. I have yeah. to put in the work. I have to get up early in the morning. I have to stay up until 1.30 in the morning and, and, and write at my computer to get the job done. I have, like, there is no backup plan. There is no safety net. There is no stimulus package for me. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and it's so interesting because I've gotten to the point where I don't even want a handout. Like, like, right. like I, I don't. I don't want somebody to give me a check because of what, because we're, this is just, I'm just speaking for myself. First right. Myself. And I don't want anybody to confuse what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. I'm not speaking on anybody's situation. Me, I, my mother has just instilled in me this thing, this mindset where you can't wait for somebody to give you something. You can't depend on somebody to bail you out. And, and, and that is ingrained in, me, ingrained in me in such a way that if somebody tries to offer me something, yeah. It's hard for me to accept it. Mm, it yeah. just is because that's not the way I the way the way I was raised. Even for my birthday, people send me my aunt Doki, she's gonna be 102 next month, and she'll try to send me a check for 20. I get mad, she sent me a check for 20. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's been doing that since I was a kid, but it's like one, I don't need the money, two, like you've done enough for me. And right. three, I just have this mindset that. That's mama instilled that in, she instilled that in you. That's the mindset. That's the tough mindset, man. And that's, you know, you know, Ben and I had this discussion because Ben is like, hey, man, you guys are going to have a lot of similarities. My mother was the same. Two jobs, yeah. whatever you, there is no welfare check. There are no handouts. You go get it and you get your butt up and grind it out. So You know, you know what stuck out to me? All that. I'm, I'm literally have goosebumps right now. I'm ready to run through a brick wall. <laughs> Something that stood out to me that you said a, a minute ago was your mother was still pushing the arts on you and was still pushing yeah. these positive things in your life when there was no reason. I mean, she's in survival mode yeah. and yet she still puts you first and she yeah. still thinks what's best for Remy and, and forgive me, I don't remember your brother's name, but what's wow. best for my, for my boys. Yeah. And so that's amazing to me that, that even though she's just surviving, She's still trying to give you guys the absolute best of that situation. hundred percent. You know, my mother, her big thing was knowledge is power. Like, like that was something she preached to my brother and I every single, yo, knowledge is power. She used to call the TV the idiot box. She said, turn off the idiot box and come get this knowledge. And me and my brother hated it. But it was a benefit because, you know, one thing my mother, my mother would make my brother and I read the New York Times mm. oh. and, and, and write reports. And I remember, <laughs> I loved sports as a kid, you know what I mean? I, I wanted to play basketball. I wanted to go to the NBA. That was my dream. Uh. And, and so my mother would make me pick, I always try to pick the sports. <laughs> my mom would be like, nah, you better go pick something else. Go pick that <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. And I hated it, but you know, my mother was again, she was trying to get me to acquire knowledge in a different way because she knew that the education system in the South Bronx and the Bronx period was was bad. And so education to her wasn't just books, but it was also, as you said, it was the arts, it was mm. going to museums, it was going to plays. I remember when we were kids. Mom, and I like looking back. I don't know how she would do it, but she would save up 
it would take her like a month or longer sometimes, but she would save up money, enough money to take my brother and I to Manhattan, a nice part of Manhattan, to take us to a restaurant. Mm. And, the, and, and, we would, and she would make us dress up and everything, you know? And she did that because she wanted us to be exposed because in, unless you are exposed to certain things, you won't know it exists. Mm-hmm. And if you're not exposed to certain things and then you find out that exists, that it does exist, when you get in those realms, you won't know how to act. Yes. Right? yes. And so my mother would take me to these fine dining restaurants and me and my brother, we would grab the fork and she no, that's not the right fork. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not the right knife. No, don't touch that plate. No, sit up straight. No, wait for the waiter. But she would do all of because again, like education to her was was life is education. Yeah. So it wasn't yeah. just books, it was art, it was experiences at restaurants, it was all of these things. So my mother was like my dad. My mother was my dad would see way ahead. Uh-huh two black boys in this country, I need to see way ahead. And for her seeing way ahead was this, I see my sons being able to, at one point, sit at a fine restaurant every day of the week if they want to. So because I see that, I'm gonna begin to prepare them right now. I see them in meetings with executives and meetings with politicians. And because I see that, I'm gonna put them in this situation so when they get there, they know how to act. Yeah. And all that stuff prepared me so much for, for life. Now, yeah, granted, I got into the drug game. I got into other stuff. But it prepared me for, you know, the teams and then work, working with the three-letter agencies and, and even to where I'm at now. Yeah, isn't it crazy? Like, we talk about being, a, you know, there's so much more to being just a parent, man. Yeah. <laughs> like, they, it, we, you know, there's so many people that have no understanding what a parent really yeah. is. And it is a sacrifice. It's a true sacrifice because I always had that feeling in my life that it's, you know, being a parent, all I'm doing is God's will, man. I'm just managing. You know, I just need to show them. I'm just trying to keep them in the, in the right angle. But this is God's will, bro. I'm trying to give them experiences that God can and then God can do his will in the end. But yeah. you have to provide those experiences and be real with them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm just blown away by her foresight yeah. and her ability to to think about these things in such such a survival situation. I mean, it's Yo, incredible. It's called sacrifice. I mean, it's, it's something unreal. That we, I mean, look, there, there are people out there that, that go through it. Like, you know, Remy, I, I'll say this. I thought I grew up in a, in a tough situation. I thought, I, honestly, and then I get drafted and and unlike you, I didn't have my mother didn't show me some of those things that your mother showed you. Like you know, I, it was the when I got there, it was the wild moment. Like who that? Where the hell? Are you know, <laughs> these people. Are, this is meat. This is what steak looks like. I mean, I had no idea. So I went through that. But then I'd hear when I got into college, and specifically when I got into the NFL, I started hearing stories, and I said, "My stuff, man, I was living in luxury." Yeah. Like, my story does not compare to some of the guys that went through those situations. But I want to keep on moving. I, I know I don't want to – you know, you, there, was, there was some good – your mother did a, a great job of, of, of uh, raising you and your, and your brother. Tell us about your life that ended up happening because there was a life and a lifestyle that happened in, in, uh, in New York City. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, but to just – before I touch on just to jump 
touch on the point you made. You know, like everybody, it is always somebody in life that has it worse than you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. I don't care who you are. And yeah. the person who's at the very, very, very bottom of the worst list, they got it better than they. <laughs> they people worse than them because them people are on the grave, right? Yes. Yeah. So um, I say all I have to say. Um, not having a father, I, I didn't. It, I didn't realize how much I needed. Even to this day. I didn't, re- I didn't realize how much I needed, needed a father, but at that, at, at that young age, uh, I was searching for a father. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I think led me into the streets, as you could, as you, I'm sure you can relate to mm-hmm. Darren, mm-hmm. you can relate to as well, you know, like, you know, when you're growing up in the, in the hood, in the inner city, and you don't have a man, a consistent male role model in your life to say, this is what a man is, right? Because I had my mom saying, this is how you are supposed to act in this situation. This, but it's when it came to being a man, my mom couldn't teach me how to be a man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she just that's. I mean, mm-hmm. she's an awesome woman, but she couldn't do that. Right. And and I was searching for men to teach. Growing up in the streets, the only consistent male figures I saw was dudes in the streets. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and then hip hop coming around and rap culture. And so hip hop and rap became my fathers because I was able to listen to music and, and see myself in the music. Mm-hmm. I was able to look at these men who came from where I came from, who grew up in single parent homes like I did, who 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 but who also in my in my mind rose above their station. Right. And so I wanted to take what they did and use it as a blueprint to get to where they were. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I started out doing little things. I started out stealing from my mother. Um, then I started out stealing from local bodegas. Then I started out stealing from jobs. Then I went to stealing from jobs. And then I went to selling drugs. And mm-hmm. then I went from selling drugs to running high-level scams. And, and for me, it was all about money, power, and respect. Right. Because, you know, you get that money then you're gonna get power. And when you get power, people are gonna respect you. And another part of why why I got so heavy into the street life is because in retrospect, deep down inside, I was looking for affirmation. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have a father to say, good job, boy. Uh, you know, you're doing good in school. You know, you're doing good on a basketball court. You're doing good, keep doing it. I didn't have a father to affirm me. So deep down inside, I was trying to seek. I was trying to seek for people to affirm me and mm. say, "Yo, you're the man. You this, or you got this money and girl, all that." Stuff. And so as I was seeking this affirmation, it led me deeper into the street life, and I made a lot of money doing what I was doing. I mean, I made a whole lot of money. I made so much money that I, you know, I, I started um, funneling into, into a record company. So I was really? funneling through a record company. I started a record company. Uh, I still keep it as a reminder. Oh. <laughs> was, what was the name of the record company, Remy? That's, that's me right there. Oh, that was, that's uh, awesome. What was the name of the record company? It was Eighth Wonder Entertainment. Eighth Wonder Entertainment. Come on. That's what I did, man. I, I, I started, and we were making records, and that was one record we put out, and, and we were, you know, doing shows, and, and I was able to pay for studio time, and I was able to pay for us to go on the road, and so you were funding this illegally. Funding it all illegally. It was all illegal. So how old were you at this point? Uh, at this point, I'm like 18, 19, 17, 18, 19, 19 was when I was at my peak. Uh-huh. And then it, it all came crashing down. Um, 
uh, when I was like a few months before I turned 20. So you said you said money was and respect and, and power. Power, respect. Well, it's that, that's that lock song, bro. I'm curious in that in that little that that three year or however long window, was it as good as, as you had imagined and dreamed? Was did money provide everything you were looking for it to provide? Oh, it was a long in that three year window, but it was uh, I mean it was as far as in the moments, yes. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I would say in the moments, yes, because in the moments you're satisfied. You're satisfied yeah. when you, I mean, I was going in the clubs when I was 21 year old clubs. You have to be 21 again. I was going in at 17. Because mm, you had that money, yeah. And do stuff, you know. And so in those moments when I was getting in the club and, and macking on girls that were like 25 and lying to them, saying I'm 20, it was good. But there was always this, I was always looking over my shoulder. Mm hmm. Yeah. I was always wondering, is this when I'm going to get knocked off? Is this when I'm going to get arrested? Right. And there were people that were doing what I was doing. They were going to federal prison. Right. You know? And so. Hey, hey, Remy, stay right there. Give us, give us the mind. I mean, man, listen, yeah. you're in a situation. Where it's a criminal mindset. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is where you are, right? Give us, and you're going there, but give us that. What's that criminal mindset? Like, if anyone's listening right now and they know they're on that edge right now of doing something illegally, what is, what are you thinking at that time? What could happen to you? Oh, what I'm thinking is I could get killed because there's everybody trying to knock you off to take off your spot, take over your spot, right? I think that, that's one thing, you know, you can't trust anybody. Mm-hmm. Can't trust anybody. Nobody you selling to people. I mean, I hate even to say this, but people who say they're your friends. You know what I mean? Like uh, people who are supplying you. Like you can't trust anybody. I mean, you can think you can trust some people, but you can't. And then wondering, am I going to go to jail or, or 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 you know federal prison? I mean, that's the mindset. The mindset is this. This doesn't end well. So for me, I always knew it's not going to end well. And that's why I was putting the money into the record company. Mm-hmm. Because what I was hoping was that the record company would take off and I wouldn't have to do what I was doing anymore. Right. Because yeah. again, thinking like my father, my father and my mother thinking ahead, I was thinking ahead. At some point, the devil's going to come knocking on his door asking for his money back. You, you know what? Money to pay him back. Yeah. So, you know, so that's the mindset for me. You know what? You're the worst criminal, bro. I'm going to say this. You're a smart dude, like a really smart dude with an entrepreneurial spirit. And that's it, yeah. And that's scary. By yeah. worse, you mean dangerous, right? You're like, dangerous. He's like, a great criminal. That's a great, I mean, it's like the, it's that guy though, man, when people look at, like, I grew up similar. Like, you see that guy, that sharp dude, he's an entrepreneur, but yeah. he has a criminal mindset. And you watch him rise, and then you watch the fall. Yeah, man. And, and you yeah. have young kids like myself who are looking up. And you can't tell me. I mean, we can sit here today. You can't tell me that kids weren't looking at you and saying, "There goes Remy." And there was, oh, a, yeah. and there was a oh, status yeah. play as well in this yeah. situation. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah, my, my, it's funny. My cousin, he was that this. <laughs> my cousin, little dude. He was a little dude. If you look. message like two months ago and uh and I, I posted the text message on my instagram because i was laughing and he said yo i just listened to this podcast 
And yo, now I know why you was, was way more fly. Like, <laughs> why you were so fly, why you had the cars and all the money. And everything. <laughs> like, he was like, now I put two and two together because he, he looked up to that, man. Like, he mm. looked up to the fact yeah. that I had money. I, would, I mean, I would, I would drive to his school. He was in, like, uh, junior high school in my brand new 2001 car, swoop them up, blasting the music. The girls would be coming by like, oh, yeah. look at this. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, the, the young dudes do look up and they want to aspire to that. And, and the thing is, one thing I try to, because I do a lot of work in the inner city now. And, and one thing I try to tell these kids is, you know what? Yeah, I made it out. But for every one of, one of us that made it out and didn't get caught, there's like a thousand dudes that did it. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. true. That's the reality. You, you, know what's, you know what's ironic is, is these kids are looking up to you, and like you said, your cousin, and yet they don't, they, you know, see, they see from an outsider's perspective, we, we see money, we see power, we see fame, we think that's, that's it. Yeah. And on the other hand, you're telling us that you were stressed to the max the entire time. Oh, yeah. You, you weren't enjoying that money at all. No, no, you can't. And then, and then, and then the thing was, everybody's looking to me to provide. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I'm the one that's, if I don't cut the check, we're not going down to the recording studio in Virginia. Mm-hmm. If I don't cut the check, then we're not going to be able to pay for the hotel in this part of town. If I don't cut the check, we're not. So everybody's looking at me and I'm having it. It, it is stress. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is. And it's so crazy because when everything finally crashed, crashed, like when it all crashed. Yeah. Tell us how it crashed. In a long time. Yeah, you, you, yeah, you talked about the drug money, but you also said corruption, I believe. Or, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So Tell I, us about that. Yeah, so I had finally gotten into the game, and I was just like, you know what? This drug thing is way too risky. It, it, as a matter of fact, when I was selling drugs, I wasn't even selling in New York City. I would go up to Poughkeepsie, New York, because in New York City, every, there's a drug deal on every corner. This is like Starbucks. At the time in the nineties, you know, and so I was like, I would go up to buy my way in in Washington Heights by where my grandmother lived, and I would go up to Poughkeepsie, New York, and sell my drugs because it's college kids, you know, it's college Mm -hmm. kids, you know, suburban kids, that kind of stuff, and it was it was less risk, but then it still became risk because you still got the. You still got the cops up there, you know. You still got these patterns. Every every single one of us create patterns, and I began to realize I'm creating a pattern. I would go up there. I would stay at this. Or my buddy who's a Dominican dude. He lived, his parents moved from the Bronx, upstate New York, for a better life. I would stay in his at his at his house, and then I just had these patterns. And every time I tried to, I, I would change them up, but there's still a pattern. Mm-hmm. And I realized I need to do something else, or I'm gonna get caught up, or I need to supplement this. Or I'm going to get, I need to break up the pattern even more. So cell phones started to come out around this time. And uh, everybody wanted a cell phone, but the thing was cell phones were very, very expensive. Um, I mean, for a plan, you would get paying $29.99 uh, for an hour for 60 minutes. And once that 60 minutes ran out, you know, or it was like 30 minutes or whatever, but once that time ran out, you're paying like something ridiculous per minute, like 25 cents a minute or something. And so I got hit to the game, and I, and I, 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 I took a job at this company called MCI Worldcom. And I, uh, long story short, I met this dude who taught me how to create blow phones. So a blow phone is you take somebody's PPI, personal information, 
and you activate a line of credit and, and, and usually well, if a person has good credit, you can activate three cell phones. Mm. And those three, they would get them, they want to get their bill for the first 30 days. Wait, 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 go back, go back. Remember, we lost you for yeah, a second. Just for a second. So those three cell phones, start right there because we lost you with the connection. Oh, those, you get those three, three cell phones and then what? So if a person had good credit, then they would, they would be approved for three cell phones, three cell phone lines, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and those, and, and you had 90 days to pay the bill before it will cut off. So for the, you want to get a bill for the first 30 days, but then, then you would get the bill, but then you had 30 days to pay. So that's 60 days. And then if you didn't pay it in those 60 days, within those 60 days, then you had another 30 days before they turn it off. So what I would do was I partnered up with a buddy of mine whose girlfriend worked at a hospice and he would get people's information, date of birth, uh, address, social security card, all of this information. And I would take that information and I would activate up to three lines per person. Per, hmm. and, and I would sell those phones on the black market, specifically to drug dealers, for anywhere between 300, depending on the phone, because you know the phone came with a plan. So hmm. between 300 and $900 per phone. So you do the math, and there were times when my buddy would he would give me like ten sheets. So ten sheet on ten on ten sheets of paper on each sheet of paper, you had five names with address, date of birth, social, all the pertinent information. So you do the math. That's how I was bringing in ridiculous money <laughs> because and because the cell phone game wasn't as monitored and up to speed. It was brand new. There was no real oversight. So I was able to get away with all kinds of stuff. Like now you can't, there's no way anybody could do that now because it's almost, I mean, especially with the way iPhones are connected and encrypted and you got to, it has to be tied to your name when you go set up a plan. It's, it's yeah. not, it was easy back then, you know? And so that's how I would do it. And I would just make, I would, and the phones would stay on for 90 days and then the drug dealers or my friends or whatever would come back to me and say, I need another one. Boom, here's another one. Mm. I was the first one doing unlimited plans. So, I was doing unlimited plans. You were the creator of unlimited plans. By the way, this is Tyler. This is Tyler over here. He walked in late. Sorry about that. So, what's your boss saying? This, this whole. I mean, you're like the world's greatest salesman in his mind or her mind. Great point. On top of that, I'm salesman of the quarter. I, I was because I'm getting paid a commission on each phone on top of that, mm, right? Yeah. And so, um, but but that's when it, when it all started going downhill. Where there were other people doing it, and mm. I was working because it wasn't like now we have a sprint store. You go into these storefronts. It was I worked in an office building, right? Mm. So my oh, the office building that I was working out of was actually it was uh, on a Forty Second Street. Um, right by Grand Central Station, Park Avenue. Manhattan. You know what I'm saying? Put on my suit, go and jump <laughs> on the floor train, go up to the nice park, go over my office and smooth and make phone calls and then grab my, my, my phones and stuff, go back to the hood and do my thing. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And because and my mother taught me how to act in certain arenas, I would be in my office with the other uh, suits and, you know, and, uh, hey, how you doing, sir? It's a big day. <laughs> 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 and, 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 and you all laugh at this part of the story, but long story short, 
people started getting caught because people started getting greedy. People started getting greedy and people started getting caught and people started going to federal prison. Mm. When that started to happen, around the same time, I sold a bunch of phones to a drug dealer and, and I, I kind of broke my, my, my edict was one person, one phone. Maximum one person, two phones. One day this dude who I was working with selling to came to me and he wanted 10 phones. I thought about it. First I said no, he talked me into it, I sold it to him. 20 days later, he comes knocking on my door, all my 20, all my 10, whatever, 10, 15 phones cut off. He wasn't happy because he had went to go flip those phones. So he went to go flip those phones and they all cut off early. So at this point, he's mad because he's lost a lot of money and he's looking bad. He threatens my life. Mm. And essentially says, hey, you know, everything was cool between us. This is why I said you can't really trust people. Right. Because everything was cool between us until a mistake was made and my life was threatened. And in the midst of that, I got him his money back. I had the money, so I got him his money back in the day. And then that's what, that was my, that was my wake up call where I was just like, I kind of need to get out of this. I need to get out of the drugs cell phones, all of this, because at the same time, people were getting caught and going to federal prison. Right. So I went to the, I went to my office, and I went to and my mother helped me write this letter. It's so funny because my mother, she read my book, and she was like, "You a damn fool, really?" Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're criminating me. You yeah. asked me to write that letter twenty years ago. You said you ain't doing anything bad. You were doing everything. <laughs> so my she had no. So sorry. So she had no idea that you were that you were doing this illegally. She no no idea. idea. Wow. She, no idea. she writes me this letter. I take it to my boss and I turn it in and my boss is in tears. But she was like, Remy, you're a great salesman. You're a great person. Like, why are you leaving? Please stay. And I, at the time, what she's saying is, I'm like, oh, I think she's stalling. I'm like, oh, she's stalling. The cops mm. are coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's just trying to keep me in here. <laughs> and uh, long story short, she wasn't. She was just genuine. She liked me as an employee, and, and she didn't want me to leave. And I told her, I said, listen, there's too much craziness going on here. People scamming phones, getting locked up. <laughs> I don't want nothing more. And in my stupid mind, in my stupid mind, I'm thinking, if I quit, I can't get arrested. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, no. That's the line of the day right there. I think that's why I have my mom write the letter because I was 19. I'm thinking, if I resign. <laughs> but now looking back, they could have they got the statute of limitations out now, so they can't do that. But, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, I want to check on that. That was my wake up call. That's, you know, between. Between my life threat and between everything that was going on, that's when I was just like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life, but I got to do something. And my brother, you know, he was at Syracuse University, full ride academic scholarship. He studied, he got, he graduated in three years in, in, in engineering, electrical engineering, got his master's in one year and computer mm. science engineering. And then he, so, so he, I, I, I had, a, I wanted to be like him. You know what I mean? Like I want, he's my, he was a year older than me. And I was like, man, like I'm out here in the streets doing all of this stuff. My brother's in college and doing great things. And what am I going to do? I need to do something. So I didn't know what I was going to do. And the, when all the money dried up, the record company went away. And, and that's when, you know, six months later, I was just like, I got to get out of here. Because mm -hmm. 
it's nothing left here for you. So what happened then? I mean, tell us, I mean, again, like you're on the street, man, and you got so many people that are counting on you yeah. at this time. The record label goes away. Goes away. Yeah. You're at home. Yeah. What are you thinking? What's the next steps? I'm, I'm thinking, I'm trying to figure out what to do. And like, there's a lot of pride within me. I didn't want to go work at McDonald's. I didn't want to go work at Walmart. I didn't, I didn't, want, to, I didn't want to go to college, but I didn't want to just work a regular job. You know what I mean? And uh, I, I didn't know, man. And my mom, she would like, literally, she would, I wanted to be in the entertainment. I wanted to be a rapper. I want, not a rapper. I wanted to be a, 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 a music mogul. Right. And, and, and so even though the money had dried up, I was still pushing that. I was still pushing these records and trying to get into a studio deal or a label deal. Um, and finally, you know, around June of 2002, nothing was still happening. And that's when, you know, divine intervention, I felt this call to go into the military. Like I felt something say, you know, you need to get out of here. You need to join the military. And, you know, and, and I truly believe that it was. Because um, it, it couldn't have been my idea because I hated the military. I hated the government. Mm. I, you know, I hated the police. I saw the police do a lot of bad things growing up in the Bronx. I had been falsely arrested and charged, um, thrown in jail. You know, I was doing illegal stuff, and when I finally got thrown in jail for something that I that you know wasn't illegal, and I just had like a lot of bad bad experiences with the law. So I and I associated anybody in a uniform as the police, including the military. And so when that idea came to me. You know, that's why I always say I truly believe it was God. You know, hey, get out of here, join the military. I fought it. I was just like, I'm going to the military, man. Mm -hmm. ain't no working for this government, man, doing any of this stuff. I ain't doing any of this stuff. Uh -huh. And, you know, I remember I was looking around my bedroom one day and I was just like, what else, what else am I going to do? Like, what else has my life amounted to? Like, I have nothing to show for. I'm, I'm 20. I have nothing to show for. And that's when I was just like... All right, let's let's see what happens. So I went, I grew, I went, walked down the street. I grew up on Fordham Road, and at first I went into the Marine Corps recruiter's office, which there was nobody. I sat there for 15 minutes. Nobody showed up. There was coffee on the desk, but there was nobody. It was open, but there was nobody in there. And so I got up and I walked down the hall to the Navy recruiter's office, and uh, I walked in there, and it was this gorgeous um, Navy recruiter in there. <laughs> A uh, Puerto Rican woman by the name of Tiana Reyes. And she you still remember the name. Oh, you remember the name. Yeah, I'm mad cool. Like her, I'm mad cool with her family to this day. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, I'm going in there. I see this beautiful woman, and I'm thinking, man, not only we have maybe have a Mac on her, and uh, <laughs> I'm gonna get this fool in the Navy. And uh, yeah, first thing she did was she had me do a practice, um, a practice test. Um, Oh, are you guys hearing noise in the background? No. Oh, you're, you're good. Fine. My partner's out there. I, I can have my assistant tell him to stop. But um, um, she had me do the practice ASVAB test, and uh, uh, and I passed that. And then she ran my background check. And when she ran my background check, she found out I had two warrants out for my arrest. And I didn't even know I had warrants. And as soon as she said that, like, I got really, really hot. Anytime I get nervous, I get hot. Because I'm thinking that this is the, this is the Fed stuff. This is right. the phone. And so I got up and I got ready to run out of the office. And she said, where are you going? I said, I'm getting out of here. I'm not trying to go to jail right now. And she said, don't, don't walk out that door. 
you know, it's nothing for you out that door. I was like, yeah, no, it's, <laughs> there's freedom out that door. <laughs> and, and she was like, no, listen. And I said, no, she asked me, do I have a collar shirt and some nice pants that I could throw on? I said, sure. And she said, come back tomorrow. I came back the next day. She was in her dress uniform. And she took me to both judges. She took me to the judge in New York, the judge in New Jersey, advocate on my behalf, say, hey, this guy's trying to join the Navy. Um, after 9-11 has taken place, he's trying to turn his life around, but he mm-hmm. was with a, military, with a criminal record. Can you expunge his record? Both judges unanimously said, yes, we will expunge his record if he's serious about joining the military. Um, and then she went a step further and she fudged the paperwork and snuck me into the Navy. And, mm. and that's how I got into it. And if it wasn't for her, you know, I wouldn't have gotten to the Navy. I literally get, I get DMs and messages to this day from kids saying, Remy, how did you do it? I got this misdemeanor. I got this charge when I was 16, 15, 14, and no recruiter won't take me. The military won't take me. Can you write me a letter? Like, and, and, I, and I tell them, you know, I got, it's about that one recruiter. You got to, it's like, you got to find that one person that's going to take a written. And she took a huge, why? Why did she do that? Because she was from the Bronx. She was from, she was like, real talk, she was from the Bronx. And I later found out, she died two years later. But, oh, mm. Mm. And, and that's why I say me and, me and her brother, Matt, who, and, and her daughter, me and her daughter's become like my daughter. And, uh, uh, you know, I later found out, speaking to her family, that she knew that no other recruiters would give people like me a chance. Uh, mm. And she became a recruiter to go back to the Bronx to be able to get kids like me out of our environment and give us a second chance. She wasn't like super patriotic or all that. She was just like, listen, I'm from the hood. I know the benefits of the military. You go to college for free. You get to travel the world, you get money. Like get out of this hood. She, her brother would tell me that she would drive around the Bronx and people who she grew up with who were drug dealers on the corner, she would tell her, hey, come up to me. She, and she would drive around in her government vehicle. And she would talk to him and say, listen, get out of here. Let's go. Come here. I'll put you in the Navy. I'll mm. put you in the you want to go. I'll put you in the Air Force. And she would do to try and get people out the hood and into the military. Her brother, as a matter of fact, when he got charged with some misdemeanors, she came back off of a deployment and hooked him up with one of her recruiting friends to get him into the Air Force. And that turned his life. Wow. So wow. Now, that's why she did it. Because, you know, she, she knew that nobody else would have given me that chance. You know, yeah. you, you just mentioned what what happened to her. I, we we lost you for a second there. Did she? Oh yeah, she, yeah, she died of a um, she died of a rare autoimmune disease. Um, oh. it was uh, uh it's called myo myositis or something like that. Um, I mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in my book. I can find it on the chat and put it. I can put it in the chat at some point. But yeah, she yeah, it's a super rare autoimmune disease that, that she died from. Man, I feel like there's got to be a movie made about her, like oh, her yeah, story. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Man, that's, 100%. that's what I've been thinking about. I've been thinking about, like, you know, as a storyteller, you know, yeah. I'm writing, you know, movies and, and producing and, mm-hmm. and doing the TV thing now. I'm, I'm adapting a book right now to a TV show. I've always been like, man, like I told her brother, I was like, man, it needs to be a show about your sister. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean, we yeah we we all have a football background. We think of coaches that that went the extra mile. That went beyond what the job description was. And man, that sounds like exactly what she was doing. She had a true passion, a true heart. One hundred percent for the law. One hundred percent. 
Yeah. Awesome. Okay, so give us that story then, man. I know you're, you're okay. So you're 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 in in uh in, in Brooklyn, right? At the time, Bronx. Bronx. You're in the Bronx. Don't disrespect Sorry, him. Sorry, he's from the West Coast. Yeah. Don't mind him. <laughs> okay. What's up, these, what's up with these Phoenix cats, man? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're in the Bronx at this time. You make the decision. You're going to the Navy, right? Okay. Yeah. Give us that. You talk to mom about this. What, what's the mother's reaction oh, to this? Crying. 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 My mother was devastated. She's mm. like, you're going to die. <laughs> yeah, because if you think, if you think about this, it, this is in two thousand two, right? Two thousand two. Yeah. Okay, so nine eleven happens. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, the country is, especially New York City. What's happening yeah. in New York City? I mean, you're right in the mix of yeah. of everything. So yeah. that had nothing to do with you know, because there was a lot of people who were enraged back back then. They were like, "I'm getting, I'm going in." You know, not my country. That wasn't you. Nah, nah that wasn't me. Nah, nah, that wasn't me. <laughs> nah, 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 I wasn't patriotic at all. Like literally, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have a sense of patriotism until I joined in two thousand and two to like two thousand and eight. Really, I didn't have a sense of patriotism until I went to other countries and saw how. And not necessarily the countries that we were fighting. I've been all around the world, but like I've, I've, I've been in other countries and stopping other countries and away to places and seeing how other people lived and see and seeing the lack of, of freedoms that people have in other countries and, and seeing how, uh, the, the, I mean, there's disparities as it relates to, you know, uh, wealth in this country. There's no freedom. I've been in countries where you cannot say anything about the government. You say one thing about a politician, rap. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, you can't have any, any sexual preference. Like, it's just straight. If anything else, dead. You know what I mean? Like, you go down the list. So I want to go to these countries and see how people would live. And you, you can't practice free, no freedom of religion, no freedom of speech, no freedom of, of life, period. And no opportunities, and then I would just come back here and be like, hey, man, like, you know, we have things we need to work through here, but I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. Mm-hmm. But I've seen it, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, not just seen, but experienced, you know what I'm saying? Okay. And, uh, and, and, and so when I went in, it was, it was purely a survival decision. It wasn't like the, they came in and took the towers down, and now I want to go, go to war, and nah, it was none of that. <laughs> I was just trying. To, I wasn't trying to go to war. None of that. I was just trying. I was trying to. I was trying to get in and 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 you know and and get out of the life that I was in. So what was that experience like? So you 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 go into the navy, right? I mean, I'm sure the first week is like in your face. Like, what the hell am I? Do- what was your mindset when you first when you got there? Uh, it was easy. Like it was. It wasn't. A, it wasn't a shock for me because. Uh, it was easy. I'm in boot camp with kids. I'm 20 kids out of high school, 17, 18. Um, a lot of kids from all over the country. You know, a lot of kids from the Midwest. Uh, and, you know, it was one of those things where it was easy. Like, I remember the first night, I'm laying in my rap, and all you hear is <laughs> <laughs> all throughout the parents. I'm like, yo, what's going on? I bent down, like, what's going on? Or they crying because they miss their mommy. I'm like, what? <laughs> and, and dudes with serious, dudes with fake committing suicide would 
or attempt to commit suicide to get out of the military because they missed their parents. And they missed their culture zone. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, it, it, that bugged me out. So it was easy for me. Like Navy boot camp, Navy boot camp was easy. Um, and, 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 you know, yeah, I got yelled at, uh, but that didn't bother me because I grew up getting beat up. I, I was going to say, running for your life on the streets. It's like, like yeah. come on, dude. I know you're not going to do anything to me. Yeah, you thought you were in the country club in, in the Navy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the drill sergeant would say something like, yeah, whatever. But then I would, I would put myself in check for Tiana. Yeah. Because mm. Tiana, you know, she did what she did in order to prove that people do change. Right. In order to prove that people are salvageable. And if I went into the Navy and acted crazy or, you know, talked back or whatever, you know, did whatever, and it got kicked out, and then they did a deeper dive into my history, then I would have been out of prove the government right as it related to why, you know, mm -hmm. I shouldn't have been in the military. Yes. So it was also easy for me to not capitulate and, and get crazy because of Tiana. Mm -hmm. I wanted to prove her. I wanted to prove that she did the, made the right decision. Mm -hmm. So, so it was easy. Yeah. So you, so you joined the Navy, but then what leads you to become a SEAL? Because, yeah. uh, you know, Marcus Luttrell is a Texan and, and, and a lot yeah. of the, the SEALs we hear about, it's been a dream of theirs for lo their whole life. Yeah, yeah. But for you, you were just escaping where you grew up. So how yeah, did you, why in the world did you choose Navy SEAL? Well, it's a two-part answer to that. One, I saw The Rock in 2000, in, in uh, 1995, 1996. You remember that movie? Oh, yeah. The Rock. Sean Connery. Yeah. Oh, yeah. when they were in Alcatraz? <laughs> that the one Alcatraz? Yeah. Yeah, Alcatraz, yeah. yeah. And that was the first time I was exposed to Navy SEALs. Because they had the black suits on and going in the water. And, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And, you know, the underwater cars and all that. I was like, and I always liked James Bond. You know what I mean? For some reason, I always liked the James Bond, you know, 007. 007, yeah. You know, and, uh, and so that had kind of. Man, why do we let me wait? Wait, before we go there, why do all black folks? Why do we love James Bond, who's a white dude? I know, well, no why? Because he's smooth. Because he's smooth. I got an easy answer because Hollywood won't show us anybody else. Yeah, oh, true. Yeah. You know what I'm ah, true. That's, yeah. that's why. Because yeah. Hollywood wants, a lot of Hollywood won't spend the budgets that are needed to be spent in order to make that type of film. Yeah, that's why you don't see. In Hollywood, you'll see the 20 million, 30 million, 10 million black films, 10 million dollar black made black budgeted films. Right. You'll, see, you'll see the comedies of 20 million, you'll see the third, but you won't, but but very seldom do you see the 70 million, 80 million, 100 million dollar black film. You don't see that often. Black right. actor, but you don't see that often. Right. So that's why you know everybody would be double seven because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the closest and, we got to it. Yeah, because he a player. <laughs> 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 I say I, I don't want to get in trouble. People try to flip out on me for saying that. I'm just saying. No, that. no, 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 no it's real. It's real though. I agree with that's you. Good. Yeah. But, so, so, uh, yeah, go ahead. But, yeah, the seal thing was for me was kind of going back to um, my upbringing and my mother always preaching excellence and you know whatever you do be excellent at it and always strive for the best don't just be subpar don't just 
and not knocking anybody that's just in the Navy, much respect to everybody just in the Navy. We need everybody in their roles, every role there is from the cook to the mechanic to the pilot, everybody's role is essential. Um, for me, I just didn't want to be, I just, I wanted to be at the, be the best of the best. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to be excellence personified. And when I got in a boot camp and, you know, this Navy SEAL came and he put on this presentation as to what SEALs do and showed guys jumping from planes and scuba diving and going through this extreme training and, and just doing the craziest missions, like my mom's words flashed before my, before my eyes, you know, excellence, when the excellence, when the excellence, when and, you know, and then also coming from that background, of, you know, growing up in New York City, I wanted to be a rapper. Like, to me, that was the pinnacle. That was the heights. I wanted to be not just a rapper, but a rap mogul. That was the heights at the time of, of, of New York City culture was being in the music industry and being successful. And to me, the SEAL teams was that. And, you know, and then also I wanted a challenge. You know, I've always been that type of person that, you know, I can't, like I said earlier, I can't take a hand out. I can't take the easy route. You know, I always, I'm always looking for what is the hardest way to do this? <laughs> what, is the, what is the thing that everybody says that can't be done? And I want to try and do that. And, you know, SEAL training was that, you know? And, uh, and so, what I, you know, I didn't get, I couldn't get into SEAL training out of boot camp because I didn't qualify academically. I didn't qualify I couldn't swim. I didn't have the I didn't have the physical aptitude to do it. Um, but after I got to my first command, which was Naval Hospital Camp Pendleton, I just put in work for a year. And within a year of checking into that command, I was checking out and going to SEAL training. I hadn't met every qualification needed to get in the SEAL training. And uh, and, and and that's that was it. That, that was my north star. My north star was was excellence and a challenge. And yeah, I got challenged. I mean, SEAL training is it's it's no joke, bro. It's it's. Mm -hmm. Did y'all catch? Did y'all catch what he said there? He said, "I wanted to be a seal, but I didn't know how to swim." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no. <laughs> uh, I'm not surprised. I was saying, there's something you had to overcome. So, how, <laughs> so you, before you're going off to, because you know you have to qualify. That those are the qualifications you had to get. You had to, you know, learn how to swim, uh, yeah, yeah. get your academics up. So, what was that process like? What was that that mindset of of preparing to go there? Uh, first was the planning. You know, um, you know, we have a saying in the SEAL teams and uh, plan, prepare, execute. And, uh, uh, you know, I had a plan and I set goals. I set realistic goals. So, you know, um, uh, well, part of my plan was I had to change my schedule. So I was working uh, eight hour days from eight in the morning to four in the afternoon. And uh, I would try to work out afterwards, but I was just way too tired. And it was just, it was just, it was just too much for me at that time, you know, especially transitioning in California now and trying to, trying to figure out how to get into SEAL training. So I went to my, my, uh, my, my boss and I said, hey, you know, can I change my schedule? Can I work four hours in the morning and then, and then four to five hours? I work an extra, extra hour in the evening and, and, and so that I could have the afternoon from 12 to, to four to train. And she said, absolutely. And so my plan was from 12 to four o'clock, I was training, whether it be physically, academically, or mentally, I was doing something that was going to prepare me uh, to, to meet the qualifications to get in the SEAL training. And, uh, and, and so that was my plan. I had my plan on Mundays. Mondays were my, 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 uh, my push-up training type days. Uh, Tuesdays was my run swim. Days. And I had it all laid out and I had a chart. I had this, this, um, this book that I, I charted out and I put the dates uh, at each section 
and, and, and every day I had to do at least, every, every, every week I had to do at least one extra push-up or I had to cut my run time by at least one second or I had to cut my swim time by at least one second. Or, you know, I, I created this, um, these goals, you know, uh, eat the elephant one bite at a time. That's what I try to tell people all the time. And the more, the more I, I, I met those goals, the more it boosted my motivation. You know, like if I could, like when I, when I was able to do 15, I was just like, yeah, I got to 15. Like that, that was a win that I, you know, I celebrated and, 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 and it boosted my, boosted my confidence. And, it, and, 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 you know, and I did these things consistently. I had, I didn't have a car. I would run three miles to the pool, uh, started out in the shallow end, tried to figure out in the shallow end. Gradually, I began to move to the deeper end. And then gradually, I began to do one lap. And gradually, I began to do two laps. And I got all the way to the point where I could swim consistently for 500 yards, you know? So again, I planned, I prepared, and I executed, you know? And I set, I set incremental goals. And as I set those goals, it boosted my confidence and then, and then I began to get better. And so I did that for a year and it was, it was repetitive, you know, but you know, I'm, I'm writing a project now and one of the lines that I'm writing, I, I essentially say something and I'm just going to paraphrase it is, you know, you know, the, you know, repetition is what often leads to greatness. You know, sometimes it's like, even with SEAL training, a lot of people look at SEAL training as a very complex program. It's not a complex program, hence the term basic underwater demolition SEAL training. Mm -hmm. It's basic. And, and, and if you could, if you could, uh, if you could be consistent, right, in certain arenas, the more consistent you could be, the more you show up every day, the easier things will get, right? Mm -hmm. Well, maybe not easier, but the more you'll be able to adapt to the, to, to the situation. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that I didn't do while I was preparing for SEAL training was I never trained with anybody. Um, there were times when, when people, I didn't have training partners. Let me, let me, let me clarify. That. I didn't have training partners. There were times when people would come up to me and say, Remy, I want to go to SEAL training too. You know, can I train with you? And I would say, sure. sure. And those training partners only lasted like a day or two days mm -hmm. because my training was just so balls to the wall and so hard that they didn't want to show up for the, for the, for the it's consistent. But, but I had built up these calluses where the pain didn't bother me. Anymore. And I didn't realize how much the pain didn't bother me, but it just didn't bother me. And, and by beating myself into submission, by the time I got to SEAL training, when I was beaten in submission by the instructors, it was just like, it wasn't easy, but it wasn't as hard as it was for other people because I had already tortured myself for a year. Mm. Wow. Yeah, what are you seeing those other people, you know, as, as they're walking up to ring the bell, right? Yeah. And, and what are you thinking in your mind? Like, hey, there's no way I'm going to be that guy. Or was there ever that point where you're like, man, this is this is real. Like, this is tough. Like, I don't know if I'm going to get through that. And, and how did you talk yourself through that? You know, uh, those, those challenging times mentally, because I know obviously buds is going to challenge you physically and mentally because of the hours they keep you up and all that. So what was that mindset for you as you're watching these people go ring the bell? Yeah. When people were going to ring the bell, that for me was fuel. <laughs> yeah, really? Yeah. Like in Highlander, I remember the movie Highlander when they slice the dude's head off and then the dude's soul comes in and then the soul flies into the other dude. Remember Highlander? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're just taking it. Yeah. Yeah, it was like when the dude quit, it's like, ah, oh, I'm taking this. So it was, it was motivation for me. Why was it motivation for me? Because, uh, like, the crazy thing was 
that so many guys who quit were stronger than me, yeah. faster than me. They could swim better than me. They were better than me. And, and, and I mean, if you put us in a race, they would crush me. If you put us in a pool together, they would crush me. And when I would see these guys, these, these Adonises, these like, there was this guy who was a tri, like a, a, a well-known triathlete in the sports world. And everybody knew him. I won't mention his name, but everybody knew this dude. And all instructors were just like, that guy's going to make it. If anybody's going to make it. It's that guy. He's like the world's greatest, greatest triathlete, blah, blah, blah. And he quit. And so when a guy, when a guy's quit, especially a guy like that, I was just like, man, I outlasted him. I'm better than him. Like, and, and not in a narcissistic, not in a, not, not in a prideful way, but it was just like, man, I was better than him. Yeah. I outlasted him. So it didn't bother me when guys quit. And, and I never, I never, I never had the urge to quit. I never had this fear of quitting at all. Because, it, it, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, right? Why is it that, and you guys as athletes, you can relate to this 100%. But people ask me all the time, you know, Remy, why is it that the attrition rate is so high? Because it's like 75 to 90%. The class that I eventually graduated with started out with 270, only 29 of us graduated. And that's the way it is every class. You'll get classes 250, 270, and you'll get 19 people graduate, 16, 15, 20, 25. That's just, it, that's the way it's been since the beginning of SEAL training. And, you know, people ask me, why do these kids, their entire life, they wanted to be SEALs, and they get to that point where they have the opportunity and they quit? And my answer is because they didn't have a deep-rooted emotional reason as to why they wanted to do it. Right? They had superficial reasons mm -hmm. as to why they wanted to be a seal. Oh, I want to shoot guns. Oh, I want to, you know, I, you know, I want girls to like me. I want to grow, whatever their reason. Like, it was superficial. And when you start getting punched in the face over and over again, <laughs> that superficial idea really yeah. starts to a bad idea, right? Mm. And so, you know, just like you guys in sports and football, you know, I do a lot of consulting with athletes. Uh, you, know, I wear, you know, I take principles like mental toughness, critical thinking, teamwork, communication, leadership, all these principles we get that we learn in special operations, they all translate into sports. And I teach those, those principles to athletic, uh, to athletes. And it's the same thing with athletes. You know, a lot of athletes, please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. Because if not, they wouldn't be at the level where they are at the NFL or NBA, but what sets them apart, in my opinion, from, from, from the stars are, you know, is, is, this, is that mindset, is yeah. that why. Absolutely. Right? Is that, why am I doing this? Like, because when you have that deep emotional reason, why it really fuels you. Mm -hmm. It fuels you so much that it takes you to that next level. It separates the guys who don't get drafted from the guys who get drafted, or the guys who don't even get never get picked up from an NFL, to an NFL team from the guys who, who do get picked up on an NFL team. I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong. No, man, no, you're right you're because right I mean, you're you think about truth, the NFL man. or any sport. You you yeah, always yeah. like I always say. In order to be successful in sports or in, in, in the position or profession that you're in, you have to be half-ass crazy. Yeah. yeah like, yeah. There, there's got to be something about you that just burns within you because we're all – there's a lot of us, and especially in football, yeah, the, yeah. the athletic and, and the talent is that – Yeah, the gap is really it's small. It's really right. small. It's yeah. just that person who's a little – Fucking crazy. That edge, yep. Yeah, who, who who figures it out and gets to the next level. Right. Yeah. You mentioned you mentioned a reason. Yes. Yeah. What what was yours at that I point? Had, I had failed so much in life I didn't want to fail again. Mm. Oh. 
that was mine. I, you know, I failed at being a son. I failed at being a brother. I failed at music. I failed at hustling. You know, I, I had failed so much in life that that was my, I'm not, that was my moment where I was just like, I will not fail anymore. Mm. So that was my deep rooted emotional reason why I have nothing left. I can't fail anymore. And that's what carried me through every single day. And that's why that thought of, of, of the thought of quitting never came into my mind. Yeah. Because, you know, I just could, I, that was failure to me. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I so, think, I, yeah. I do think, and just to, to finish that point, I think that's what our culture is lacking, right? Mm-hmm. And some people call it purpose. Some, you know, there's all, all sorts of names for it. But that's what we don't as a culture have enough of, is individuals yeah. saying, I'll die for this. I don't care. I'm right. going to finish it. Because we're so comfortable, everything's so easy for us that we don't have to. And what you mentioned, right? Like, uh, as our country, who we are, right, and what we have here, we take for granted. Until you go somewhere else and you get you get perspective on how great we have it, it's just like, all right, well, I don't have to work hard because unemployment's down to four percent, and I'll get a job. There's a They'll pay me this and I, I'll just get something else. And, and there's not enough of, because I think that as a country, we can be great. We can be absolutely great if we just have that deep-rooted fire that Remy's talking about. Yeah. At, see, I think we see a lot with young kids, man. Yeah. You know, like, you know, I talked to my, my assistant. He's great. I mean, he's great. Great, great dude. Don't get me wrong. He's a great dude. But one thing I have to talk to him about, he's 20... 22 or 23 is following through on like not on work that we do, but on the way he's trying to go, you know, like he'll jump on a project and then he'll want to shift to something else because it's not working out. And then want to shift to something else because it's not working out. Mm-hmm. One thing I try to tell him is, you know what, just stay consistent in this. Yeah. Even if it's, even if you can see the end result is going to, it's not going to, it's not going to be excellent. Right. Yeah. Just finish it. Because once you finish it, then you know what? You've accomplished something. Yeah, right. right. You have that. You, you have that reference of going, you know what? I finished something before. So now whatever I do this time, I'll, I'll choose something else, but I'll finish it this time. Right. And I think that's a part of the, yeah, you're, you're spot on, especially with younger people. They don't have that. It's just, oh, I could just go do something else. They, they, have, they, they, they have that fallback. They, you know, what yeah. we talked about earlier, they have that QRF. You know, that quick reaction force where just like, I, I have a QRF to fall back on. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Do you think part of it is because, and we're speaking generation, generationally right now, but like in your example, you yeah. suffered, right? You went through yeah. really hard times and, and there's just our younger generation. And I would say my generation started it, right? Where I'm 35 now, my generation started like kind of life was pretty good. Because um, we just don't know what suffering is and we don't know how to push through it as, as a whole. It comes from technology. I mean, just think about, I think what it all, I mean, look at where technology was in the 90s, right? Like we talked about cell phones earlier. Like you couldn't, you, <laughs> you couldn't just grab your cell phone and, 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 and put in an address and get to where you needed to be. Mm-hmm. You had to pull out a map. Yeah. You figure it all out. Yeah. Like, like, you know what I mean? You had to do the work. Right, yeah. and, 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 and as time has passed, you get to 2001, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 2010, all the way up to now, technology and knowledge has increased, mm-hmm. right? And as, as technology and knowledge has increased, so to speak, then, 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 then the need to do 
a lot of work has kind of minimized, right? Yeah. Like you don't have to do as much work, right? And yeah. I think like, like um, we're, we're kind of seeing it now in COVID, and this is one of my fears with this whole COVID thing is that, you know, like Zoom, right? Like, like all of these work meetings that I'm having is Zoom, right? Before, I had to get in my car and, yeah. and drive to LA. And yeah. it sucked having to drive to LA, right? Yeah. But now, because of technology, you know, I have to, I could just do it on Zoom. And I, I'm hoping that we don't get so comfortable that we, that we forsake meeting in person and doing those yeah. things. Yeah, and you know what, man? The, the deal is that when you're on that drive to LA, well, a couple hour drive, whatever it is, think about the creativeness that's coming through your mind. Yeah. How creative you're being on the way because you've dumbed things down, you're sitting in the car. And, uh-huh. and that's one of the things that we don't do we try to eliminate of our life. We try to do it so fast that we forget that in that time period is where you're creating. Well, yeah, to, to that exact point with the technology, what do you do? What's the first thing most people do when they're standing in line? They pull out their phone, right? They're looking at their phone. We have lost being bored. And boredom creates creativity, <laughs> right? So, so the kids that grew up without this technology, when we were bored, we would go out and we would build a fort or we would play, you know, whatever. Now it's anytime I'm bored, I'm just going to log on to social media. And and so it's a great thing. And and, and don't, don't mishear me thinking that all technology is bad. It's a great thing. It's a great thing that we invented it, but but it's, it's covered the void of boredom and creativity and and exploring ourselves and exploring to to what you just said there. You lose that three hour trip where you can create and you can dream and you can aspire because I've got this distraction. When I'm on Instagram, 10, 15, 20 minutes goes by. I'm not even, I have you, I've used no brain power exactly. that 15 minutes. Exactly. I've used nothing. Exactly. And, you know, the thing, again, with social media, you know, so many, you know, which adds to the problem. So many young kids, they see somebody, you're able to now see successful people. Like, like just think back to our only glimpse into into fame and success was MTV Cribs back in the day. Right. Yeah. It's like, oh man, I suddenly got this. Nowadays, it's everywhere on the internet. You know, as soon as somebody buys a car, whether they celebrate or not, you're going to see it. And so these kids see instant, to them, it's instantaneous. That person just, yes. they just got a car. They didn't have to work to get that car. That person right. just got that big house. That person just got, it's like, no, they didn't just get that. Right. That's years of work. Yeah. Well, Remy, I'll, you know, I'll say this. That's the scary part is sometimes yeah, they, it's not. Yeah, I was going to say, sometimes or, or worse, this, these influencers, yeah. right? Right? It's yeah. not. They're, renting, they're renting the house. They're renting the car. They're, they're balling on the internet. Yeah, but, yeah. No, no, true, true. But what I'm saying is, no, great point. Spot on, 100%. But, but the, what, what I'm getting at is that technology has allowed people to see whether it's an illusion or not. Absolutely. Yes. 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 Success and say, well, that person just got it and they didn't do, and they, they didn't do all the work that I had to do. So I should just be able to get it. Yeah. And if I don't put it, and and if I don't do two days of work and don't have a mansion after that two days, piss off. He's preaching boys. God, you're speaking to our hearts, man. So, so speaking of that, you, you, you went through buds and it was all smooth sailing, right? There was no issues at all. Sorry, you cut out for a second. So sorry, I was just saying you, you, you just smooth sailed through buds, right? There were no issues at all. You just, you just, you just ended up. <laughs> he was he was he was setting you up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> tell tell us about your experience. Yeah, I, I uh, 
I made it through Hell Week, which is the toughest part of SEAL training. I got to, I got to um, Diet Phase, and I got super prideful. I mean, one thing I talked about all the time is how, you know, with pride, pride is a person's downfall because it's so, like, excuse me, success can be a downfall because success easily leads to pride. Mm-hmm. And, you know, coming from the Bronx, coming from the streets, not being like the only black dude in SEAL training because, you know, there's less than 1% of Navy SEALs historically have been African-American. Every class I've been in, you start out with about 250, 270. There's maybe one to three African-Americans in a class. So here I'm this kid from the hood and I made it through hell week. And I'm prideful, man. I mean, that success went to my head. I'm partying in the Gaslamp District at bars telling girls I'm a SEAL. I mean, I'm like, I'm out of control. And um, I wasn't working on what I needed to work on on the weekend. And, you know, because instructors would show up on the weekends on their off time and work with anybody that had deficiencies in area, in any areas. And I was too hungover from partying and chasing girls all night long that I wouldn't show up. Mm. So when I get to second phase, which was die phase, I failed, um, I failed a, 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 an important test uh, and I ended up getting kicked out of SEAL training. Uh, I got kicked out of SEAL training and it was a huge wake up call from what it humbled me. And it really taught me the, the importance of taking responsibility for my failures and not blaming anybody else because for the majority of my life, I had always blamed people for my faults and my failures. And it's this person's fault, it's that person's fault, blah, 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 blah. But that was the first time in my adult life that I took responsibility for my actions and, you know, and decided that, you know what, I'm going to come back to SEAL training and I'm going to learn from my mistakes and make it through. And a year and a half later, I went back to SEAL training and I made it through. And, uh, pretty much breezed through SEAL training, graduated and, you know, and became a program. So, so it took, you, you graduated from Navy, Navy, Navy basic training, yeah, spent yeah. a year training for BUDS, uh, Buds yeah. failed after the, the dive, the dive phase, dive phase yeah. then another year and a half of training. So what, I mean, that year and a half, again, mm. now you're just like locked in, like yeah. I'm not, Dude. you knew, you knew yeah. right away as soon as you failed, I'm coming back and I'm finishing. Yeah. I, I knew I, I, I knew I wanted to come back. I didn't know if I was. Gonna, I didn't know if I was going to get a chance to come back uh-huh. because uh, because at the time, you know, you know, the war was really hot and heavy. The wars, you know, were really hot and heavy, and uh, I had got sent to the infantry, like from SEAL training to the blunts on the because I was a corpsman. I was a Navy medic, and Marines mm-hmm. don't have medics, and so they use Navy corpsmen on the front lines, and so. Um, so I didn't know if I was going to get a chance to come back because there were oh. a lot of guys that would get, you know, there were guys, you know, who were in buds with, there was a guy in buds with me and he, you know, he, he got sent to the same unit I got sent to, you know, he was in the back of a, uh, a vehicle and uh, hit an IED, killed everybody in the Humvee except for him, but he got, he got almost split in half and had permanent brain damage, you know, mm. he got it really bad. He was the only one who survived. And not split in half, literally, but, you know, half of his head got, you know, yeah. lacerated really, really bad. And he's, he has permanent brain damage. Um, and, uh, and so I didn't know if I was going to get a chance to that. But I knew that if I did, I would be prepared for it. And so, you know, there's a lot more to the story. I, I break it all down in my book, but long story short, you know, I went on deployment. And then when I got back, by the grace of God, the, uh, the guy who had, was my LPO, had become the command career counselor. And, and just to put things in perspective, that guy went from being in charge of 12 people to being in charge of seven people. And 
And so, and as a command career counselor, he was the one who could make the decision to allow guys to go to SEAL training. Mm. But because I had worked under him for a year and he knew my work ethic and he knew I had made it far in SEAL training and he knew I wanted to go back, he was like, all right, Miami, I'm going to get you back to SEAL training. And that was a miracle because that wasn't the policy. You had to do three years of two deployments at First Marine Division before you go back to, to SEAL training, before you can go to any special program. And so I just did a year and a half and I went back. And, yeah, and, and you know, I, I didn't miss that opportunity. You know, wow. I, was, I, was, I didn't do any partying in my – like, I didn't do nothing. I just trained. I trained and trained and trained, and it paid off. Wow. Yeah, that's so two. So it sounds like two people in your military career. You know, obviously there's more along your journey, but two oh, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So many, <laughs> so many people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my, you know, Tiana Reyes, my recruiter, my LPO who let me, you know, change my schedule so I could train and go to parts. Yeah. Um, HM2 Rasta who got me back early. And there's so many other people along the way. Yeah, 100%. That's crazy. Nice. Okay, so you go, you go through SEAL training. You, you graduate. Yeah. Now, you, you, what is your deployments? What is, what is SEAL life look like for you? I mean, is, are you, can you take a breath? Or are you like, okay, now I put in this work. Now it's time, you know, to go do SEAL things. Yeah, yeah. So, um, it's tra- well, you, after you graduate, you get put into the workup cycle. Kind of like, you know, the NFL, you guys have, have just trying to, my, I'm sure it's not the same, but it's in a similar tone you guys have. You know, you have your mini camp, and then after your mini camp, training camp. Yeah. Your training camps, and then you, you, know, then you work your way through. So, yeah. and, 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 still, and then you have your seat. You have what we call pro dev first, which is professional development. And each each seal within your platoon goes to different schools. So some guys will go to sniper school. If they're already a sniper, they'll go to advanced sniper school. Some guys are going to intelligence school or advanced intelligence school. There's all kinds of different intelligence schools. Some guys will go to racing schools where they're racing Corvettes and doing all kinds of crazy stuff with cars. Some guys will go to lock picking schools. Some guys will go to demolition. Like there's all of these schools and and a platoon within a platoon, the platoon has to get all, all these qualifications amongst the platoon mates. So just like you got your quarterback, your, yeah. your, your, your tight end, you know, you can't go on the field without all of these essential players. It's the mm-hmm. same thing. You can't go on the battle without all of these essential players within a platoon. And so we have pro dev, which is about four to five months. And then after you have pro dev, we have what's called ULT, which is unit level training. And um, that's when your whole team comes together and you do everything as a team. You skydive as a team. You, you patrol as a team. You dive in the water as a team. Hitting, hitting, you know, targets, placing mines in the water. You, uh, uh, you uh, do CQC, close quarter combat shooting. You uh, hostage rescue training as a team. You do everything as a team. And then after that, that's about five to six months. And then after that, you have what's called SIT. And SIT is when you essentially if there's any shortfalls, like if there's, because by the time SIT comes around, that's where you know where you're deploying to. And so if there's any, like, hey, we're deploying to this region of, I don't know, Sirius, and there's these mountains over there, so we need some extra guys with extra mountaineering, mountaineering training, then two guys will go there, right? And so SIT is where you pick any shortfalls that you may, that you may have, depending on where you're going to go, then guys go to those specific schools or if a platoon needs to get refreshed or uh, just get like more advanced training in a particular area because they're going to be deployed to a place where they're going to be conducting that type of mission, 
then they go do that. And then after that, you do your six month deployment. Then you come back and you got 18 month workup again for six months. <laughs> again for six months. Um, so it's, 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 uh, it's, a, it's, it's no joke, man. <laughs> that's one thing that's hard. Like you think, you know, American sniper, you know, Chris Kyle story, right? Like they just breeze through that whole process really quickly. Right. Like it shows that it looks like he finished, finishes buds and then he gets married and then he like goes and gets deployed. Like there's that, there's a lot of training that goes on in between and then in between deployments, even more training. Right. That's yeah. why you're the elite of the elite. Yep. It's nonstop. They put a lot of money. They put a lot of, a lot of money into us. Yeah. Um, what was, what was the cool and, and a training aspect? Um, you know, like what was one of the activities that you're like, man, this is, this is pretty cool. Like whether it's sniper training, whether it's explosive, I mean, whatever it is where you're like, man, this is, this is pretty badass. <laughs> I mean, for me, it was everything. Especially yeah. coming from where I came from, but and not expecting to be anywhere near where. Is this how you're supposed to shoot a gun? <laughs> like skydiving, right? Like there were times we just skydive all day. Like, uh-huh. hey, no sir, we do skydiving all week. You know, it's just like, dude, I get paid to just jump out of a plane and skydive. So you know that was awesome. And then, um, and then you know when I the driving schools were. You know, and you're, you're on racetracks with Corvettes and you're speeding and you're doing J-turns and you're, and then you, there's this court where you're going to do this demolition course where you're smashing other cars and seeing where you get hit other cars and you're driving backwards and speeding and you're driving from the passenger seat because you got to act like the driver's dead and he's slumped over and you, that was crazy. Driving That's awesome. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, the, the intelligence stuff was really was, was my cup of tea. And yeah. so I really enjoyed a lot of it. I can't go into detail about the schools right. that I went to, but I went to a lot of like really top-notch intelligence schools and was able to, you know, just get some really great training from, from guys who have been in the intelligence world for a long time, talk three letter agency type stuff. And, uh, you know, and then I was able to, you know, use that overseas, you know, um, uh, you know, an intelligence side of things. So that was, that was a fascinating um, side because I never knew that, uh, I knew that they were, that there was intelligence units when it came to SOS, but SOS Special Operations Forces, and there were people who worked in intelligence. I didn't know that there were specific jobs for actual operators. And mm, yeah. so, you know, so, something that's always fascinated me, and I'm, and I'm so intrigued by, you know, you did all this work, you put in all this time, you had this, you said you put yourself through so much pain yeah. and self-inflicted pain. Yeah. How, how, how did the reality compare to what you dreamed about? It could, for me, compared, I mean, for me, it was everything. I mean, for me, it, it was everything that I expected it to be. You know, I mean, um, I, I'm not sure if I'm answering the question properly. But uh, like, I think so. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I'm just, my, I guess my point is, is we, we, we do all this work, we put all this time, we dream, we dream, we dream, we aspire, and then we accomplish it. And sometimes it doesn't live up to what we dreamed it would be. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Yeah, it you know what I'm saying? Good. Yeah, for me, it did. Yeah. For me, it did. And, uh, you know, in all honesty, you know, it's still having gone through that program and having become a, become a SEAL, you know, it's, it, it, it's opened up so many doors for me even now. It still, it still follows me. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have the, had the jobs and the opportunities that I've had if it wasn't for this, for the SEAL team. So 
So even before I got out of the teams, yeah, it definitely did. Like, it definitely it met my expectations for sure. And I did feel like, yeah, I was able to accomplish cool things and do cool things and, and, and you know, and, and protect people and save lives and, and, and do awesome stuff. Um, and then now, you know, like, like I, I work with an work with, uh, organization called Operation Underground Railroad. And, uh, you know, Matt Osborne, you know, Matt Osborne, you know, Matt Osborne. I'm bad with names. I'm good with all right. He, he, so, so I, I work with IJM a lot with IJM and there's a group here in Dallas called new friends, new life, but Matt Osborne, we had on the show. Uh, he, he was with, uh, CIA, um, but, and so he ran a ton of operations with them, but he leads missions for operation, operation underground railroad. But Hey, bless you for serving there, man. It is unbelievable, man. I, I love, love what y'all are doing. That's an awesome organization, man. When um, I met Tim, I actually met Tim for the first time. I mean, he's he's been a big supporter of OUR. I met so I met Tim there for the first time. Yeah. And, and you know, he she he showed me what they were about, and I was just like talked to my wife about it, and I was just like, man, I'm I'm more bored, man. Like to to be able to use the skills that I've acquired over the years as a SEAL and uh, in this realm of protecting and, 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 and trying to rescue kids trapped in not just human trap organ harvest. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's the heaviest stuff right now. Evil, oh, wow. evil, yeah. evil. It takes organs out of kids and selling them on the black market. And, and you know, and, and so, um, so yeah, man, it's, 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 I say all that to say the SEAL teams have, you know, totally did because it's, it's opened up doors for me to still kind of work in that, in that field and, and do other things. So let me ask you, man, I, I, and I know that, you know, you, you went through all this training, you, you had to create your own mind, you know, it was a mindset that you had to get through and the mental training, the physical training. Talk to me about when, your first mission, and I know you can't talk in detail, yeah. but what were the nerves like? Because look, we have football nerves and, <laughs> and they don't yeah. compare to those nerves. Our nerves are we walk out the tunnel, we play a game and then we walk back the, through the tunnel. Right. Yeah. Give us the nerves that you were going through at that time. Honestly, it wasn't much nervousness because um, the training, man, it's like they, you train at such a level that you know if something goes down, you're prepared. Mm-hmm. And, 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 then, and then another piece to it, which for me is the bigger piece, is you know the guy to your right and your left is as trained, if not more trained than you. And if something goes down, they got your back. You know what I mean? And 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 and, and I knew like my my biggest worry on a mission wasn't my for my safety. It was always that I what if I do something? You know what I mean? So that was the biggest fear for me is messing up or making a mistake or not making the decision to protect my teammates or to protect civilians, you know, that, that, you know, need to be protected. And so because I had so much confidence in the training and, 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 and the guys around me, it wasn't, it was just like, let's go do this. You know what I mean? Let's, you know, I never forget this one time um, on my first deployment, we were getting ready to go after this this um, HVT high value target, and we had been tracking him for a long time. I'm not going to be specific for for obvious reasons, 
but uh, we went into our briefing room and our OIC officer in charge briefed us, hey, we're going into this area. Just think, just think it's like, it was like the projects. Mm. Going into the projects, hundreds of fighters in there. We're going in at two in the morning, night vision, to get one dude. Mm. It's only gonna be nine of us, 10 of us on the ground, rest of the guys in the vehicles. We can't get into a firefight. Because if we do, ain't no way nine, 10 dudes is gonna be able to mm. beat a hundred, whatever, a large number of guys on their own territory, right? The stakes were really, really high. After, after he gave his brief, we all looked around at each other. It was like, yo, what's up, man? What are we waiting for? Let's go, man. <laughs> yeah, let's go. You know? So it was that kind of mentality of mm. not a foolish, not, not being foolish and arrogant and prideful. It was just understanding that we have been trained at such a high level that we are equipped to handle whatever's thrown our way. You know, and, 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 and when, you, when you're prepared, you, that fear begins to, they can still be, it lessens. I'm not going to say it, it completely dissipates, but it definitely lessens the more. The more. Just like going to the test, right? Like if somebody's going to go take a, a written exam at school, the person who has studied and they've been prepared, they're going to go into that te- in that room like, I'm good, I got this. The person oh, yeah, that's trying to cram the last minute and haven't done any studying and partied all night long, they gonna be nervous and scared because they didn't prepare, you know. So yeah, that's, I'll show that analogy. I know all analogies are perfect, but that's the best way to explain. It. Yeah. All right. So I, I want people to 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 go read your book because obviously we can get a lot of these from that. And I, I want to push that. So talk about I'm sure in the book, and I and I'm I'm ordering right now. By the way, I, I got to pull up on Amazon. Um, but I want to I want to tra- fast forward to that transition out of the seas, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to civilian life and what that was like to you. We talk about it all the time and, and we always, always preface it that it's not the same. By no means was our job life or death, but athletes struggle with transition. And so- It's 100% the same. Okay. I hear you. I hear you, but I do not believe you. <laughs> Listen, man, I'm pitching a project to a studio uh, in the next few days and it has to do with sport. I can't go into all the details about it, but it has to do with sports and and um and part of it is is that. Yeah. Is the fact that especially for guys who, who are in special operations, right? Because you know, we we we're training for I go on the field and we do the job and we come back and we get ready and we go do the job. And that's what we know. And that's our life every single day, every single day. And we're getting paid. Our check shows up on the first and the 15th. Don't have to worry about nothing. Everything's going good. And it all of a sudden it stops. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing I would say with you guys, you know, you're, I mean, from before, I mean, going back to high school, I mean, longer for you guys, right? Cause mm-hmm. when you guys start playing football, right? You know, you know, whatever it was called, mini, mini football. In high school, you know, you're going, you're going, and classes, football, college, classes, football, training, training, camps, all of this stuff. Boom, NFL, over and over again, everything. And then all of a sudden, stops. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it, it's, it's hard, man. Yeah. It's hard because, because it's like, what am I going to do? Right. 
you know, how am I going to use, how can I use these skills? You know what I mean? And uh, it was hard for me, man. And I, I, you know, I was trying to figure out what am I going to do? And I tried different things. And it was actually, it was actually sports that really helped me find my way. Um, you know, doing the consulting and working with, working with athletes and, and, and taking the principles that I learned in, in special operations and translating them into, in, into sports and talking about teamwork and communication and, and leadership at every level and, and all that stuff really helped me like teaching helped me to find my healing and my purpose. Mm-hmm. Was there anyone in your journey that helped you guide you to that? Because again, you, you mentioned skills, tools, all these things that, that, you know, military personnel, whether it's special operations or, or just, you know, you know, a standard serviceman, you know, man or woman, and then athletes, it's the same thing, right? There are skills that can translate. It's just, how do we translate those to the civilian life? Yeah. Um, you know, what helped me to translate those tools was, was actually doing it. Um, so, so, um, towards the end of my career, I got to work in the motivators office Mm-hmm. Uh, and the motivators office is a, is a SEAL recruiting office, and uh, and and during that time, um, uh, the, the motivators office would allow pro athletes, collegiate athletes, and Olympians to go through like one to three, one to three days of training. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, it was twofold, obviously. Like one part of it was to the coaches would you know they would get free training out of it, and the players would get good free training out of it. Uh, it was it was exposing athletes, especially D1 athletes, um, to, to special operations in the case, you know, they didn't make the NFL or they didn't make the NBA, whatever uh, they were shooting for. They had a, another team type uh, uh-huh. job that they could turn to. And uh, uh, and so, you know, I was I would run some of these camps, you know, and uh, and in running these camps, you know, it really um uh, I really begin to learn how those, I begin to learn more about the principles and how I use those principles and the terms of those principles where I didn't, they weren't labels on them before. It was just like, I just did them. Right. Mm-hmm. And I begin to really, the more I begin to teach, the more I begin to be able to put labels on those, on those terms and on, on those theories. And, uh, and then I took that and I began to try and package it and, 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 and do those same clinics outside of the military. And that was kind of my transition. Right, but you don't say, you know what, Remy, I'm, I'm listening to you talking and, and it's, I mean, you have a creative mind. You started off as a kid and you, know, you wanted to do music. So, you know, that doesn't leave. Having that creative mind does not leave. So when you're serving, when you're serving the country and all, and you're off uh, somewhere, for, are you still thinking in your mind that, look, I want to get back in this music. I want to do film. I want to do, I mean, was it ever a part of you that said I, that creative itch was still in you? Not really, not really, like, like when I was in, my plan was I was going to do 20 years. So my plan was I'm going to stay in and retire after I got into, after I got into the SEAL things. Um, I still did writing. Like I, I did a lot of writing. So, so as an, as a guy working in intelligence, you have to do a lot of writing. You have to write a lot of intelligence reports. And then, you know, I wrote, I would, I would just write, I would write messages and sermons and write all kinds of stuff when I was on deployment. And, and so creatively, I was still getting that outlet through, through writing. And, um, and, um, but I didn't know what I was, I didn't know I was going to get out until like a year before I got out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and what, what really pushed me out was I had two sons, 
you know, my oldest son was born, my oldest son was born in 2014 and my, and my middle, my, now my middle was born in 2015 and I got out in 2016 and, 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 and I, I needed to be home. I needed to be my boys because my mm-hmm. dad died when I was young. Right. And so, so, so when I decided to get out, that was abrupt. That was like, uh, you know, because my plan wasn't to get out and do anything creative. I, I want to say the creative stuff followed me. It, it, it really, you know, it was just like, there's certain things that you call to and there's certain things that call to you. And, and, and creativity and storytelling is what called to me. And I say that because when I got out, I was like trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And I figured I was just going to do speaking and public speaking and that wasn't working out. And, and I was trying to get more clients for my, my athletic training thing. And, and that was work, but it wasn't as consistent enough to keep paying the bills. And, uh, and, and, and then I went on a trip with Cody Gifford. And, and, and Kathy Lee Gifford. And uh, I really began to, I got peace, man. I really got peace. I got, I got, I was able to get level and say, okay, I, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to get there some way. So I kind of like, like all of the craziness slowed down for me. And then two months later, I, I received a phone call to work on Transformers and uh, be a consultant. And when I got the consulting job, and, and they threw me in as an actor, but when I got that job and I got on set and I started working on that movie, and it opened up doors for other stuff in the film and TV industry, other TV shows and movies and stuff that I worked on. I was just like, this is my home. Like, I'm coming back to this creativity. Like that's when I was like that. The, all of those creative juices that have been with me since I was a kid, music, even hustling and figuring out different ways of hustling. That's my true purpose, and now I'm going to really focus on that. And that's where I'm at now, where my whole focus in life is creating and telling stories, and 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 not just for the purpose of telling stories, but for the purpose of changing lives, saving lives, inspiring people. Because story has that power. Yeah, love that. Yeah, yeah, tell us, tell us a little about that. How do you, how do you spend your days now? What, what are you doing these days? Yeah, so my days are spent writing for the most part. Um, I, uh, I write films and I write TV shows. I, uh, I just, uh, I'm, I just got hired. Well, I got hired a few months ago to adapt this book, uh, Slave Stealers, into a TV series. So nice. I'm, working on, I'm working on a TV series now. Um, uh, they already have it funded the first season. They're looking to uh, have it, oh. have it chosen which streamer it's going to be on. Um, so working on that, I wrote another film that got picked up by a production company. Um, true story about the first group of African Americans to serve in special forces. Phenomenal story. I, I didn't know the story until I got out the military, but I came across the story and I was just like, wow, like, nobody's ever done this as a movie. So I wrote it as a movie on spec and that got picked up by, by a major production company. And then, um, and then, yeah, I'm just working. I'm just writing. So my everyday life is, is writing. I'm actually working through a writing project for this this sports movie that I'm that I'm going to be pitching to uh, to a studio in a couple of days, and uh, so that's my daily routine is sitting and, and, and writing stories and telling stories. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I love it. I, I'm just like thinking through the journey, and I mean, again, I, I came in a little bit late here, but but coming from a little, just a little bit, there you go. <laughs> just about an hour in. That's it. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry, hey, Remy. Remy hey. hey Keep them off me, man. <laughs> uh, so Bronx, I mean, all the all the things that you had to overcome there uh, to hustle and then to saying, okay, hey, I got to get out of that. Then to walking away from a corporate job, obviously tied to the, to the hustling a little bit. 
Then it's, you know, you had an, I'll say an angel, right. That took a chance on you. And, and then, and then you go through, uh, go into the Navy, go to basic training, focus on seal, you know, fail first round again, take another year and a half, come back. And then you go serve. And now you're literally doing something that, like you said, and, and service, don't forget about, you know, serving right. And, and operation underground railroad, but your goal, I mean, it's unbelievable. Your goal just to serve people. And it's, and to me, the, the overriding theme is right. Is, is when you found peace and success is when you are serving, whether it's serving exactly. in the military or serving people. hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. You know, that's, you know, when I came to the realization that life is not about me anymore, mm, yeah. you know, I've, I've lived life and it's not about me, you know, it's about people yeah. and, 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 you know, and, and it's about my kids, but it's about people. And, and that's where I find peace. You know, every day I get up, you know, and I'm, I'm always trying to figure out how can I serve somebody? You know, whether, you know, I do stuff in prisons, I do stuff in jails, I do tons, of, you know, I work with a nonprofit called uh, City Hope Now, uh, with inner city kids. Um, I work with C4 Foundation, we're doing stuff in the inner city with inner city kids. C4 Foundation was founded, uh, a seal buddy of mine got killed on a mission, his dad started C4 Foundation, and we're doing stuff for, for, for kids in the inner city. So at the end of the day, what wakes me up in the morning is okay, you know, how can I help somebody get to where they need to be they just need that extra push and sometimes it's just through a social media post yeah you know sometimes it's through writing a movie and sometimes it's through getting out my office and going and sitting with some kid who doesn't have a father in his life and saying yo man man don't mess it up you know and and so that that's how the world changes man like the, the world changes when 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 we serve yeah. Uh, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. That's something that I've, you know, I've gotten so much more out of giving <laughs> than I have from, from receiving. So, you know, I, I listen to your story, man. And, and the one thing I, I take away from you is in, in who you are as a person is you don't mind the chaos, like the chaos, you thrive in the chaos. You, you, you grew up in, in, in the Bronx and it was straight chaos. You go to the Navy and then you, you know, same thing like the Tyler just described it, but chaos is, has followed you and you, you seem to be, you know, very comfortable, comfortable and aware of that. But now you're in an industry and we talked a bit about it a little bit earlier. You're in a film industry that has not been kind to African-Americans, hasn't been kind to black folks at all. I mean, and now here you are in this chaos all over again. And there's so many young black kids and brown kids who are looking at you now mm -hmm. to be the pioneer through all this chaos, and you seem to be, ah, just, this is what we well, do. I'm going to keep it real. I, it ain't always I. <laughs> <laughs> I be like, oh, damn. <laughs> you know, it's hard, man. It's, it's hard. It, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's hard because you got to, you know, uh, my wife asked me a couple weeks ago, she said, Remy, what is, what is happiness to you? What does happiness mean to you right now? And I said, peace. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, because, because of my life has always been chaos and it still is chaos. But, but yeah, you know, you know, I do, I, I do, I do enjoy a side of the chaos because it reminds me that I'm still alive mm -hmm. and, and, it, and it forces me to work. 
you right. know, and it because 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 you know the thing about chaos is it wants to defeat you. It mm. wants to defeat mm. you. It wants to obliterate you and put you away and make it as though you have never existed. Right. And you know, if I can if I can punch chaos in the face or if I can just do one thing that's gonna show I'm still here, I'm not backing down, I'm not quitting, then that's a win for me. And yeah. so that's the side of the health chaos that I enjoy is being able to get back at it and say, I'm still here, I'm still thriving, and I'm yeah. still fighting, you know. Yeah. It is it is a challenge, especially in the film and TV industry, man. Yeah, it's, man. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Hey, Remy, I, we want to be respectful of your time, man. We appreciate all the time that you've given us. Um, but we also want maybe our listeners that, that haven't connected with you via social media or haven't read your book, how can they reach you? How can they get your resources? Um, I, want, I want you to take a second and, and be able to connect to, to our listeners. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Remy Adeleke, R-E-M-I, and then Adeleke, A-D-E-L-E-K-E. Um, that's the same handle on every social media platform, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. <laughs> I got yeah, a unique, I got a unique name, so it ain't the official remedies. Now I'm buy domains. I got lucky with a unique name. And, <laughs> anywhere, where books, anywhere where books are sold, but you know, obviously, you know, with everything being shut down, Amazon's been doing a great job of keeping my book restocked and, and um, getting it out there. You can get it on barnesnobles.com, but anywhere where books are sold online or even at bookstores. Sorry, we lost you for just a second. Repeat that book title again. Oh, sorry. The book title was Transform. And, uh, Transform. Uh, Transform. A, a, a Navy, that's, the subtitle is A Navy Seal's Unlikely Journey from the Throne of Africa to the Streets of the Bronx to Defying All Odds. It's right, bam, right there. Yes. <laughs> We're all yes. ordering it right now. Yes, sir. We're yeah. doing it right now, man. Wow, I love it, man. You're a must follow. I know Darren and I follow you on yeah. all, on social media, and, and you're a yeah. must follow. Anybody listening to this, I don't know how you can listen to that story and not oh my go press follow. So, no, for sure. man, we so much appreciate your time. The, the last question this is what we ask. Send me a quick DM because I, I got so I can follow you guys back too. I think yeah, I yeah, absolutely. Down, but send me your DMs uh, and I'll follow you back. Awesome. Awesome. The last question we like to ask every guest, and <laughs> I, I say this almost every time, but I'm so anticipating your answer because of, of the story that you just told us. Yeah. If you can go back to any moment in your life and tell yourself one thing, yeah. where do you go and what do you tell yourself? Nothing. I don't go nowhere. I don't tell myself nothing. <laughs> Period. Hey. <laughs> there we go. I, I, hey. I, hey. I love it. Two reasons. For one, I know my I know my younger self at any point in time wouldn't listen. <laughs> part, of, part of being a person who works and lives in chaos is you're stubborn. You have to be stubborn. And I've, I've you know I've, I've I've become less stubborn the older I've gotten, but I was way more stubborn before. So I, I, even if I jumped in a time machine and went to little nine, 10, 12, 30, 25 year old Remy and jumped out the time, you say, "Yo, I'm I'm you, man!" Like check this out. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be like, man, shut up, get out of here. <laughs> but the second reason why I want to do it is because I need, I, I, I need, I'm the type of person that needs to get punched in the face. Because, and I think most human beings are like this, we learn through pain. Yeah. You know, you know we get hurt bad, we remember that. And that, that becomes a lesson. And there's so many valuable lessons that I that I wouldn't have learned if I just received the answer. 
And, you know, that's something that, you know, I try to teach my kids today, you know, when they say I can't, or, you know, I tell them, you can't, you, the only thing you can't do in, in, in life is say I can't, especially around me. Do it, and if you fail at it, that's okay. If it's hard, it's okay, but get the lesson out of it, and then figure out. So those are the two reasons why I want to go back. Is it, Man. I want to listen, and I need to fail. I needed to fail to get to where I'm at. And, oh. I still need to get there. I still and Remy, Remy, as a father, as a father, how hard is that to implement that into your your kids' lives? Like you, need, you need to fall. Well, I, you're highly disciplined, so. But you, you, do you let your kids fall and fail, and you're not? Hundred percent. Love that. 100%. Because uh, I know how hard this life is. Mm. I know how hard this life. You guys know how hard this. You guys know how hard yeah. this is. Yeah. And it's it's not going to get easier as time goes on, as as technology increases, and as it's just not going to get easier. And so I I need to I need to be able to create a safe environment for them to be able to fail. Right. Uh, so you know they they don't. It's not easy for them to quit when they grow up and they in life. Hey, Remy. <laughs> man, you've been awesome. Dude, you've been awesome, man. You tell this story about your mama, man, and it just, dude, it brought, you know, tears to my eyes because, you know, your mother was a lot, as an angel, a lot like mine in, 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 in a lot of ways, man. But, dude, you, you can keep... follow my mom on Instagram, too, because... Oh, mama, yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> We're writing this down. Dude, you want to see some motivation? My mom is about to be 70, and she's she posts workout videos on Instagram. Every day. <laughs> What's her what? handle, man? Man, we got to do a podcast with her. Yeah, you do that. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah, Paulie, this... Pauline and Lincoln. That's my mom's, man. She's doing curls. We're looking at her right now. Yes. Doing curls. <laughs> Paulie, that's my mom's, man. My mom's, she's, she's still in the Bronx, too. Oh, oh man, man, I love it. That's awesome, man. It's conversations like this why we started this podcast, and, and like man, like they said, man, right. we, we so much appreciate your time. And when you're in Dallas next time, hit us up, and, and we'd What's love that? to no, yeah, for real. Connect in person. And when we go come out to the West Coast, we're gonna yeah. come out and see, man. You talk about face to face meetings, right? Like we we much more enjoy podcasts face to face, right? Yes. Like, and we want to do that. So we got to follow up. We got I'm sure plenty of stories to talk about. We'd love to come out and visit you. Most definitely, most definitely. When you out here, hit me up and get the thing same when I'm out your way. All right, Absolutely. perfect, man. Good to see you, bro. Appreciate you, Remy. Take care, Thanks, man. Remy. Right, brothers. God bless you right. so much love. All right, man. Appreciate you. Hey, great stuff, man. Appreciate Yo. you so much. I mean, first and foremost, I apologize. I was late. I was on a work call that I could not get out. And but hey, he said money is more important than you. Man, <laughs> so dude. Nah, apparently, <laughs> apparently, my client's problem was. More important than anything and everything that I had going on. But but thank you for your service first and foremost, man. And then thank you for you know serving after and, and everything yeah, that you're man. doing, man. That's true oh. testament to to a man and and I'm assuming a godly man just by by how, how you're talking, man, and appreciate you. Um but hey, I, I just shot you a DM on Instagram. I mean, it, it on this athlete deal, any way I can help, man. That's kind yes. of a passion yeah, of, all of us, is, man. is helping athletes transition. You know, yeah, insight, yeah, whatever, yeah. anything we can do to help, man, holler. Yeah, yeah I can tell you guys are not recording now, right? No, 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 no. no. All right. Yeah, yeah, so you guys know Game 1? Yeah. Yeah, so Game know. 1, so uh, that, that, I'm, I'm, I'm looking to do a, a, a film project with that. With Brad okay. And, uh, and, and Basil and them. Uh, uh, it's in a tone of sports and, and, and the military kind of stuff, but just yeah. like character stuff. 
Man, I love that because because that's one of the things. And we, you know, the last couple of years, we've been working with a handful of guys here locally, just kind of connecting with mentors. Like, and as I mentioned, right, having someone say, okay, hey, look, you've got all these skills that, that, that apply that, that employers, that companies are like dying to get these skills, but you just don't know how to take that, right? Because like you said, I've had my day laid out for me all day, every day for the past 20 yeah. years. Now, what do I do with it, right? And then, and also too, right, is, is I know for me, and this is a conversation I have with a lot of guys, is you think that, hey, look, like my only value is football. Like how can I help in a boardroom? How can I help in sales? How can I help in this? And I mean, the, 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 how inaccurate that is, it blows my mind. And, and so many guys think this, like CEOs just want you in their office to talk to you. Like they just want to hear your stories and, yeah. and so that they can go share that. And I mean, it's, it's crazy the value that athletes and, and military personnel can provide, but just don't realize it. 100% because it's a fresh perspective. That's right. Mm. It's a fresh perspective and it's a unique perspective. That's you right. It, it's totally valuable. Yeah. I mean, there's so much, it's so much, um, and I hate to sound, you know, make it about the money, but there's so much money Man. out there yeah. for pro athletes and, and, and military to consult yes. and, and break it down in, in a way that, you know, because how many people at those companies follow sports? Right, right, right. You know what I mean? And, right. And they're going to be like, oh, yeah, like I get that analogy. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. And, and that could totally change the trajectory of a company. Mm-hmm. That could change your business plan. That could change the way they recruit. That could change so much. So it's totally valuable. It's totally That's valuable. right. Oh, that's right. Well, man, any way we can help, please holler anytime, man. We're here for you. Thanks, Remy, man. Appreciate Thank it, bro. Same here, same here. Right. Appreciate it.